It was a cold October morning in Wilson, Kentucky, when the mutilated body of Nancy Lowe was found on the side of the road. Although some suspects were investigated, no one has been held accountable for the death of my cousin. It is my hope that this podcast will bring us closer to finding Nancy's killer 10 years later. Okay, so I really didn't want to have to tell this part of the story. If I'm being honest, I've been avoiding it. Removing any mention of it from where I can. But in the interest of being open and looking at the case from every conceivable angle, I should probably talk about the owl woman. Now, I want to make this perfectly clear. I do not believe in the owl woman. But there are people in this town that do. And I think some think she had something to do with Nancy's death. So, the Owl Woman, also known as the Heartland Harpy, is a large, bird-like cryptid that supposedly lives in the Wilson Woods. According to many eyewitness accounts, it stands between 7 and 8 feet tall, with a 12-foot wingspan. Its body is covered with long, black feathers, similar to that of a vulture. However, its chest has wrinkly, pale human breasts, and the creature's head is like that of a bald, pale young woman with sunken yellow eyes and cold blue lips. It has only been seen in the woods, and only at night, which is what makes the accounts of the Heartland Harpy so unbelievable. The origin of the Owl Woman goes back to the beginnings of Wilson, Kentucky. Legend has it that Merle Nest came across the creature while taming the Kentucky wilderness with his young son. It is unclear if the legend is actually Merle Nest's account of what happened, but according to several records I found in the Wing County Public Library, Merle Nest brought his young son with him into the woods to teach him how to hunt pheasants. Suddenly, Wilson Nest fell into a catatonic state and landed face down onto the ground, seemingly not breathing. Merle Nest fell to his knees and attempted to revive his son, but was unable to wake him from this state. Being a man of God, Merle Nest then prayed to his Heavenly Father to bring his boy back to life, begging for God to grant him this small miracle for all the good he had done for his congregation. However, when God did not answer his prayers, Merle called upon any spirit that would listen. At first, he only heard the sound of branches bending and leaves waving, feeling a gust of wind picking up around him. He then heard the sound of the great wings beating above him and suddenly landing next to the boy's body was a harpy. Its piercing yellow eyes staring down at Wilson's lifeless body and then at Merle. The harpy spoke, saying it had heard Merle's cries and would make a deal with him that his god could never accomplish. It could not resurrect the dead. However, it could allow Merle to see his son's smiling face one last time. It would perform this blessing for a price. It wanted to feed upon the boy's body. Merle hesitantly agreed, sobbing into his hands, knowing what he had done was a transgression against everything he believed in. He then heard his son asking if he was okay, asking why he was crying. Merle Ness removed his hands from his face to look down upon the still motionless and pale body of his son waiting for him to respond again. 
However, he realized the voice was not coming from his boy, but from the beast before him. Staring up at the harpy, he saw an uncanny imitation of his son's face on its bald, pale head. He looked him in the eyes, asking Merle why he had let his son die, asking him why he had forsaken his god, taunting Merle with his own son's face before contorting into a disturbing vestige and feeding hungrily upon the boy's flesh. It tore out his eyes, ripped up his stomach and spine, and fed upon the warm organs, all while wearing the distorted, fleshy mask of the boy on its face. Merle watched in petrified horror as the boy's blood pooled around his knees. Merle Nest, driven mad by his experience in the woods, returned to town covered in blood and carrying his son's mangled body. According to what I could find at the library, even serious historical accounts about the founding of Wilson mentioned Nest's murdered son. They also mentioned how Nest, a pacifist, called upon the men in his congregation to follow him into the woods to bring Wilson's murderer to bloody justice. But the murderer was never found, and, according to some historical documents, Merle Nest's mania would split the people of Wilson into believers and non-believers. Although Wilson looked like he had been the victim of a vicious animal attack, some secretly harbored doubt in Merle's paranormal story of the harpy. The believers, however, would become known as the branchers. They would challenge any non-believers to stay in the woods overnight and listen to the sound of the branches bending and breaking. As the rhyme goes, Branches break up in the skies, run as straight as the crow flies. You'll be in for a surprise. She will come to take your eyes. After the death of Merle Nest and the proliferation of Wilson, the branchers seemed to quiet down and disappear. It was just accepted that you don't go out into the Wilson woods at night and instead stay on the road connecting the two parts of the town. However, as strange goings-on to happen in the Wilson woods over the years, Small groups of townsfolk have quietly joined together to create the secret brancher meetings to appease the Owl Woman. Many pets and farm animals have gone missing, only to be found dead in the woods. The bodies are always found without eyes, and their backs and stomachs are ripped open. Police reports usually chalk these up to bear or mountain lion attacks. But everyone knows. Everyone always just knows. It's the Owl Woman. But it isn't just animals that have been found dead in the woods. In the 50s, there were reports of a young girl named Deirdre Peck who had an unwanted pregnancy and left the baby in the woods for the owl woman. She told her boyfriend, Cecil Cage, the youngest brother of Bill Cage. Cecil was furious and went out into the Wilson woods to save his child. He never returned. After a month without a sign of Cecil, a grief-stricken Deirdre walked into the woods to die. Now, the authorities have combed through the woods for weeks looking for Cecil's body, and many had suspected he had found the baby and abandoned Deirdre, perhaps run off to a nearby town and made a new life for himself. But it was Deirdre who found him. It was twilight, and Deirdre had lost sight of the road 
nearly an hour before. She thought she was going in circles until she stepped into a puddle she hadn't noticed before. It was like drying mud, thick and brown and sticky. She nearly fell into it, but landed against a tree and caught her balance. As she stood back up, she realized the mud had somehow landed against the side of the tree. She wiped it off on her blouse and realized the brown substance also had a shade of red. It was dried blood. She followed the trail of blood up into the tree and saw Cecil and her child. Their bodies were tucked behind the leaves as if hiding and their limbs had been tangled in the branches of the trees. Deirdre, who is now 80 years old, has said looking into Cecil's lifeless face made her realize the pain of death and the horrors that the woods hold. She ran back into town and told the police, but refused to lead them to any of the bodies. She has always refused to go back into the woods and has become somewhat of a recluse ever since. In the 1970s, a string of stolen pets and livestock led to a citywide investigation, with authorities searching everywhere in town for the perpetrator. After three months of animals mysteriously disappearing, officers began checking the woods for the bodies. Once they reached a tree line, they were surrounded with the overwhelming smell of rot and decay. With the use of gas masks and makeshift hazmat suits, the officers were able to search deeper into the woods. That's when they heard, off in the distance, what sounded like the shivering ribbit of a dying frog. They followed the sound until they came across what looked like a large sacrificial site of dead and eviscerated animals, all piled up and arranged in a circle the size of a small house. They had assumed the noise was some kind of hurt creature, but what they found puzzled them as much as it horrified them. The officers found a small boy, no older than eight years old, starved and hoarsely crying beneath a bush and surrounded by a cloud of flies. The authorities brought the child to the hospital and attempted to question him about his identity. This was difficult due to the fact that he could barely speak English. The boy's name was Macario Calabro, and he was from a small village in Nuevo Leon, Mexico. He and his father had traveled to Wilson after hearing of the Owl Woman, or what he called La Lechuza. According to Macario, his village had been terrorized by La Lechuza for decades, resulting in the death of his mother until his father was able to banish the beast. When his father had heard about similar events occurring in Kentucky, he brought Macario nearly 1,400 miles to hunt, capture, and kill La Lechuza once and for all. When questioned about the location of his father, Macario simply said, Look like Mama, and began to cry. Scattered among the bodies of the slaughtered animals in the woods, investigators found pieces of human remains, such as finger bones and jawbone. There are still pieces of Macario's father that have remained unfound to this day. Macario was deported back to Mexico. Despite how infamous the Owl Woman is around these parts, there exists very little physical evidence of its existence. 
No footprints, no eggs, no droppings, no feathers that can't be identified as belonging to existing birds. The only thing that keeps the myth of the owl woman alive, other than the killings, are the photographs. The first identified photograph of the owl woman has been referred to inaccurately as the Vertov photograph or the swan shot. It was found in the early 60s during the construction of the Swan Estate at the edge of the Wilson Woods. Because of this, many believe the Swan family had taken the photograph, but this is untrue as they hadn't moved to Wilson yet. The photograph was found and developed by a construction worker named Penn Vertov. According to his co-workers, Vertov came across a camera while clearing out the trees around the proposed construction site. The camera was a nearly destroyed Nikon F. The outside scratched and the lens shattered. There was no distinguishing marks on the camera to indicate ownership. Even today, nobody knows who actually took the Vertov photograph. Being an amateur photographer, Mr. Vertov decided to take the camera home in an effort to fix it and develop whatever was on the film. When Vertov did not come into work the following day, his field engineer, a man named Bill Horn, came by his house to check on him. Mr. Horn found Vertov's front door broken, his apartment a mess, and the bathroom door locked from the inside. He smashed Vertov's bathroom door open and turned on the light. Mr. Horn, who has been dead for nearly 30 years now, had his experience recorded into a book called Dark and Bloody Ground, an oral history of Kentucky's urban legends. According to the book, Bill realized three things incredibly quickly. One, Vertov had turned his bathroom into a makeshift darkroom and had developed three photographs, which hung dry on the shower curtain rod. Two, Vertov's body now lay bent over into the bathtub. His upper body submerged in the photochemical agents, his torso and head horribly deformed by numerous gunshot wounds. Three, Bill Horn, by flicking on the bathroom lights, had destroyed the original film negatives, leaving the developed photographs as the only evidence of what was captured by the destroyed, unclaimed camera. The first photograph was a slightly out-of-focus depiction of the Bardstown City Limits sign, proudly declaring it the bourbon capital of the world. The sky an endless white void, the dead trees behind the sign looked like black veins reaching to the heavens. The second photograph, which has been criminally underreported, was an askew shot of the construction site from deep in the woods, seemingly taken midday. In the distance was Penn Vertov, measuring the allotted space for the house's foundation. In the bottom right corner of the foreground was a gun pointed directly at Vertov. This, of course, isn't the part of the story people usually tell. It doesn't even appear in the Dark and Bloody Ground book. People either know Vertov as the man who took the Owl Woman photo, which he didn't, or they think he had committed suicide after seeing the third photograph, which is absurd and frankly insulting. But people always retell the last part of the story. The third photograph was taken at night in the woods. A flashlight illuminates the leaves of the tree near the center of the image. 
And to the far right, sitting on the branch of a tree nearby, sits a figure which some have said is the Owl Woman. The figure is, of course, incredibly blurry, and experts have suggested it to be a large nest or perhaps a broken branch. But due to the fact that the camera had been found nearly destroyed, the admittedly odd shape of the figure in the tree, and the sudden halt of construction by the workers, people believe this was all the doing of the Owl Woman. When, in reality, it is much more understandable to believe that Bill Horn, fearing for his workers' safety, refused to continue to work in the woods. It is suspected that the Swan family sought cheaper labor and the construction continued uninterrupted after that. This was the only photo of the Owlman for decades until 2003. The second photo, taken by 14-year-old Brock Stevenson with the cell phone, is simply known as Brock's Branches. I have spoken recently to Brock, who is now 30 years old and a manager for the Swan Shop, about the night he took that photo. He wanted to start by saying that he did not believe in the Owl Woman before that night. He remembers that he was walking through the woods on his way home from football practice. Practice had ran a little long, and his recently divorced parents had forgotten to pick him up from school. So Brock decided against using the phone he had just been given by his father. Instead, he would carry his helmet and shoulder pads back home himself, out of spite. The stars in the sky are obscured by the tall trees, and the moon peeked through the waving branches, creating the illusion of people walking between and hiding behind the trees. And what took Brock only 20 minutes in the mornings seemed to take him almost an hour. At about 40 minutes into this trek, he began to hear branches bending just behind him. He stopped suddenly, testing to see if he had made this noise. Perhaps his shoulder pads had caught on a tree. But the sounds didn't stop. Brock proceeded to walk faster. It could be the wind. It could be an animal. Then he heard the voices. The voices sounded like his brother Wren, who was eight years old at the time. According to Brock, Wren had taken his parents' divorce very personally, believing he was to blame for them splitting up. The voice kept crying, cawing, encircling Brock, mocking Wren's own cries. It sounded like it was saying my fault over and over again. Brock began to cry and threw his shoulder pads into the darkness behind him, breaking into a full sprint, trying desperately to navigate through the trees as his eyes filled with tears. Finally, his cleats landed on... Finally, his cleats landed on solid road. He stopped and held his breath. Brock claims that he saw it, just behind him, its yellow eyes hungrily glaring at him from the tree line. He felt the air gust up around him and nearly push him back as the creature halted suddenly. He then pulled out his phone to take the photo, knowing no one would believe him, knowing that he must remember the moment he had outrun death itself. But it flew away, and although many can see a silhouette among the trees, I have to be honest, it is much more possible that it's just branches making an odd-looking shape. 
Rock had said that he went back the next morning to find his helmet and shoulder pads and found them torn and ripped to shreds. But, I don't know. I get the feeling that Brock is embellishing his story. I feel bad doubting him. Even though Nancy didn't believe in the Owl Woman, she was fascinated by how it had become a part of the Wilson story. She had even considered doing a lesson about it around Halloween when she was teaching classes. She used to say that you can learn more about a person based on their beliefs than their actions. Take the story of Merle Nest, for instance. I don't think for a second that some large beast appeared before him and murdered his child. But something happened to him in the woods. Nature had turned its ugly head and became something Merle could not understand or trust. Nature took his son away from him and left him a broken man. So, in a way, the old woman did exist to Merle. And to Nancy, that made the story of Merle Nest make a lot of sense. But blaming the Owl Woman doesn't make sense to me. Somebody killed Wilson Nest. Somebody killed Cecil Cage. Somebody killed Makario Calabro's father. Somebody pointed a gun at Pen Vertov. And somebody murdered Nancy. And a couple of scary stories and blurry photographs isn't going to convince me otherwise. There was one more thing I found while at the library that I don't think has ever been mentioned before. I was looking at all the old issues of the Wilson Watch, trying to find any mention of branchers over the years. I remembered what my mom said, that Paul Swan might be hiding something. I think I know what it was. Back in the 80s, there was an article talking about a spike in brancher activity among the youths of Wilson. There are photos and interviews with different people about the rise in stolen animals and the attraction of the brancher movement. And two people are mentioned as possible members of the branchers around at that time. Bill Cage and Mary Crane. Even though I've been back in town for nearly three months, I've yet to find a reason to talk to Paul Swan. Yet another thing I've been avoiding, I guess. I'm going to reach out to him in the hospital and see what I can find out. If you guys want to get a hold of me or see any of the photographs mentioned in this week's episode, you can find me on Twitter at FliesPodcast or email me at FliesPodcast at gmail.com. I'll be back next week with whatever I find.